Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name. And we're still here. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This is the new direction of In the Can. We are card counters at the blackjack table, and we're going to turn the odds on other movie podcasters. This is Moneyball on In the Can, part of the Barn Burner Podcast Network. Listen up. You may not look like a winning team, but you are one. So, play like one tonight. We're doing something really unexpected and special, and the whole city is feeling it. If we win with this team, we change the game for good. This better work. I'm just kidding. What's up, man? It's another episode of In the Can, part of the Barnburner Podcast Network. We're doing Moneyball today. I'm eating cashews like Billy Beanwood eats the whole movie. It chows down on everything. So I'm going to be doing the same, enjoying a nice Ananda in this quarantine here. I'm here with Zach, the Barnburner bro. You're second in the can. I'm excited to hear your, your movie knowledge. Uh, your oh. person in the can was a, was a sports movie also. So we're going to dive into some baseball, which is your preferred don't, sport. Don't short me the Bluff City Law appearances, dude. That's true. That's true. First movie, a second movie podcast. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Um, how are you? How's your quarantine going? And are you ready to talk about this baseball movie? Um, I'm well, and the quarantine is it's still going. I yeah. spent four hours this weekend trying to dig a hole in my backyard, and I realized that I might as well be trying to cut through the Amazon rainforest with the amount of room that I have back there, so that's pretty good. Um, what are you doing? Watching Moneyball. I'm in a building uh, or installing a shed, so I'm going to pour a concrete slab. Oh, nice. So, yeah. so I'm taking advantage of this being at home time for sure. Everyone, I feel like, house is going to be much better. Like They're all doing the little things they haven't been able to do because they're just sitting at home all day. For A lot of us are working from home now. So instead of working, you're seeing that one project that's been staring you in the face for years, and you'll finally do it because you don't want to work. Yeah, for my guy Casey Long, uh, this quarantine was meant for him. Man, he'd be able to flip so many houses if he were still here, but instead he's just buying Denver real estate. Like, none of us can afford. Um, well, that's good to hear, man. Uh, you know, this is a movie that I've I've, uh, I've circled for a long time, but like I, you know, I just got around to rewatching because I hacked into my friend's VOD account. Uh, Brett, actually, uh, he has he has this movie streaming, and I have it on Blu-ray, but I don't have a Blu-ray player right now. So I was out there watching it, watched it again, and I was like, this movie doesn't get talked about enough. I mean, it came out nine years ago, 
and was a kind of a, a, an Oscar favorite that year, didn't win. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But then, you know, it's sort of been forgotten as that one Brad Pitt performance that he didn't win the Oscar for. This year he finally got one for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But uh, what are your kind of just initial thoughts about this movie, rewatching it, and, and how many times have you seen it, and just break it down? So I think I, I saw it in movie theaters for sure when it came out, and I probably saw it one other time besides that, and then I watched it again last night. Had to rent it on iTunes. Mm. Um, cause I, so I Googled it, and it says it's available on Hulu, but apparently you have to have the Stars edition, which I don't have. Mm. Um, but it is... So baseball was probably my first love of sports, like my first true love. It's pro- It shifted more towards basketball just with the success of... Tigers and Grizzlies, um, not necessarily recent years, but over the course of my lifetime. But baseball was my the first sport that I I competed more in baseball than basketball, just because of my size and general athletic ability, I guess. Mm. Um, so it definitely brings out a lot of feelings, and like you you feel a strong attachment to it if you have any if you've ever played baseball you care about baseball at all and especially with the new age analytics that has you know overtaken multiple sports yeah it's well past baseball and i, I will probably get into that i'm sure but uh, having an interest in both of those things really makes this movie pretty pretty fun to watch and yeah, also i i literally laughed out loud i watched most of the movie by myself and I laughed out loud for like 15 seconds on occasion. Yeah. It's a funny movie and it, you know, it's, it's clever. It's witty. It's a, we'll get into the, the, the script writers too, but you got a Michael Lewis book called Moneyball about the 2002 Oakland A's, you know, the first team to sort of build itself based on Bill James analytics book, you know, crunching baseball down to numbers and figuring out that, you know, you don't need these power hitters. You don't need these expensive players that scouting's doing it all wrong. And in fact, you should be trying to buy runs that get you wins as opposed to doing anything else. Uh, so we kind of came up in this era, though. We, we both sat down to do this podcast and had our respective team ba- uh, baseball jerseys on and hats, too. We didn't actually plan this, but Zach being a Cardinals fan and me being a Braves fan, we grew up during this era. And I remember around 2002, early 2000s, those ace teams were kind of like the weird dark horse team to be a fan of. I remember I had like an ace hat. Like, I don't know where I got that, but I just remember like, that was something that I had in war occasionally because they were a relatively like popular team in that era. And, and they haven't had the success recently, you know, as much, but they've had different eras in different pockets. And, and weirdly, I would almost equate them to we're both Grizzlies fans. Like they're kind of like the low budgeted underdoggy kind of like baseball team, you know, we've seen in, in baseball, whereas our two teams that we were fans of are more middle market um, payroll and salary and stuff. Like we're not like fans of cheap teams, so to speak. So it is a uh, it's kind of fun to watch from that angle too, being a fan of an underdog NBA team. Of course, the A's did a lot of that to themselves. I mean, they're in the same market as Golden State, but they act like they're a small market team. Well, all that matters is what your owners are willing to pay, you know. So I mean, mm-hmm. whether uh, yeah, the stadium might be in the same city, but if they're not attracting the same level of people, you know, all the Silicon Valley people, and it might be different now. I don't know. I don't know what their finances look like eighteen years later. Um, but we got this movie based on the Michael Lewis book. Uh, this this movie came out in 2011. It's directed by a guy named Bennett Miller. Who who uh, do you know? If I say Bennett Miller, do you have any idea who that is? Like, do you know what he's done before? What he did mm-hmm. after? Um, exactly. He's kind of a, a small time guy in terms of like these sort of big time Sony projects. A 60 million dollar movie. 
in an era where these movies don't get made anymore. You know, like sports dramas, like these kind of character driven movies like the in the seventies, we're seeing superhero movies. Like it's not really a thing, a thing anymore, even in the early 2010s. So Bennett Miller directed a, a movie called Capote in the 2000s with uh, Phil Seymour Hoffman about Truman Capote, the sex therapist in the fifties. And then he was like dormant for like six years. And then he did uh Foxcatcher, that movie with Steve Carell, where he plays like a wrestling coach. Mm. You, you I, I know that? what you're talking. I didn't yeah. see it, but I, I, I haven't actually seen about. it either. So he's only, I think he's only got three actual feature directorial credits to his name, and he's mostly a music video director. And, and you could see that this movie has a pretty kinetic style to it. Like it's like intercut with a lot of different actual baseball footage and kind of close-ups of, of computer screens crunching numbers and spreadsheets and formulas. And then there's you know it's pretty it's pretty kinetic. Uh, there, there's there's guys talking in rooms a lot, but he finds a way to move the camera around to keep you interested. And even the scenes where they're doing trades feel like action scenes, you know, which is mm-hmm. is an effective writing and directing. Uh, and speaking of writing, it's written by uh, the original script is written by a guy named Steven Zalian, who is, you know, like a, a notable screenwriter. He, he's a uh, he, he did The Irishman recently. He did Gangs of New York, works with Martin Scorsese a lot. He's kind of one of the grandfathers, the godfathers in the industry right now. He wrote a draft in like the mid 2000s. And Steven Soderbergh was supposed to direct this movie. And Soderbergh did Ocean's Eleven and all those Ocean's movies. Mm-hmm. And so but then they canned the project. Sony in 2009 pulled the plug on it like days before they were supposed to start filming uh, because they, they didn't like that Soderbergh, the director, had rewritten the script. And so he was, they were like, what the hell? This isn't what we wanted to make. So they just pulled the plug. So then Brad Pitt had this pet project for years trying to get someone to take it on because he basically produces this and is the champion for the project and is the only reason to get made because he loves this type of story. He said, quote, um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of an underdog story. You know, I'm a big fan of this type of story, this character-driven drama, and these aren't getting made anymore. So he kind of made this happen. Uh, so once they found Aaron Sorkin, who's the, who wrote uh, Social Network, A Few Good Men, um, you know, he's like uh, the newsroom. If you watch that show on HBO, big sports fan, he came and uh, co-wrote the screenplay and messed with Zalian's version, and uh, they ended up working together to create the movie we have now. But then they just went out and got Ben and Miller, who no one knew, and they were just like, "Hey, you want to direct this big budget movie?" And that was what happens. Um, but then we got this movie, which I think is is you know a pretty good result. You worry about sometimes when other directors come in, but I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the actual filmmaking process—I know this isn't like your bread and butter—is good. I mean, it, it, the movie is like it feels prestigious, right? It feels like a good movie. Yeah. You feel like you're in good hands. The writing's clever. I mean, the writing's the, the script's the best part, but. Um, you know, it, it is a uh, it is a movie that could have torn out, turned out very poorly based on most movies that that happens to do where it's like development hell, million people get their hands in it, the script gets written by four different people, it's like a Frankenstein, and it feels that way when you watch it. But this worked out for the better, thankfully. Uh, so that's kind of what could have been, and uh, and is a totally different, you know. And uh, Soderbergh, when he was going to make it, I think it's important he was going to make it more documentary style. So a lot of like player, real player interviews, intercut. In the middle, he's going to have like a, and every player in the movie was going to be played by existing baseball players. So he was going to do it like very, like almost like you're watching, you know, like a 30 for 30, you know, before those were even a thing on Moneyball. Uh, very, very documentary based. Still a movie, but this one's more thematic, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the, the first thing you have to say about this movie is just Brad Pitt, man. Like he, he's the star, he's the main character, Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland A's. And the movie lives or dies by his performance. He's like the like, like the LeBron of those Cavs teams right now for this movie. You know, he's he carries the entire weight of everything on his shoulders. 
And what did you think of his performance in watching rewatching this movie? Oh, it was he definitely brought. So I read the book probably about six months ago, the Moneyball mm. book. And one good thing about the movie is that it was a, a lot of things, even some of the references to um, the, especially surrounding the scouting and what they're looking for, like the old school guys. That division was very clear in the book. That's really what the book. That's probably like thirty percent of the book talks about that, and so that's mm. portrayed really well. And that, uh, sorry, on the outline has Brat Pitt, but uh, he's not a brat. He's um, a good guy. But the fact that Billy Bean, like, I think he did a good job based on how he is described in the book as kind of a like that hard nosed guy, um, not not trying to be everyone's friend. He's been there. He he's made those decisions. He came up as a stud. He. He chose to take the money instead of going to college, which he knew he would do. He couldn't stand up to the pressure, and you can tell it haunts him. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, he carries that weight with him the entirety of the movie, and he even references it towards the end when he gets that offer from Boston to be the highest-paid GM in sports, where he's like, I made a decision once based on money, referencing when he went uh, straight into the draft as opposed to straight going to the Mets. through Stanford. Mm-hmm. And he... You know, he says, I, I, I told myself I wouldn't do that again. And so he carries that weight with him through the entirety of this experience. He's a, um, he's just a very charismatic guy. We know that. Everyone knows Brad Pitt's charismatic. He's obviously handsome. We get that. But he's just like, can, he can carry a movie because his, his general like attitude in the scene, just, even though he can seem nonchalant, it's like he seems like the coolest guy. Yeah, he and Jonah uh, Hill work so well together. They do. They have like a big brother, little brother kind of uh, thing going on. You know, they have nothing in common at all, yeah. other than their characters liking baseball. But I think um, he just has like Pitt has this kind of swagger, like a former athlete too, which I think is important to Billy. You know, being, being the only former player GM at the time. You know, he walks around like he just wears the clothes well. You know, what I'm talking about like he he's like eating sunflower seeds. He looks like a baseball player and like. Beyond the handsomeness, he just has those sort of mannerisms down, which mm-hmm. to me, he's like leaving dip cups everywhere. Like, you know, every time he comes into a, a meeting, he always sets his cup down on the, the desk. Always notice that. So it's the little things like that sort of make you bind to this guy. And other than that, he's just kind of a surfer, bro. Like, he's like, says man a lot. You know, he's like just some bro that used to play baseball and now he's going to lose his job if he doesn't figure something out. Mm-hmm. One thing I like too is he's like really angry. Uh, he's a pretty angry guy, you know, like you see him like physically throw radios out the window, tip his desk over. And then it goes back to, you know, the intercutting of his, you know, his younger self, you know, failing at baseball and, you know, breaking a, uh, a warm up bat on the bench in the, uh, the dugout or whatever, like just super angry about not failing or failing at, at his uh, professional career. So I like that. That, that, that sort of little character take is good. Makes you buy into him. Nominated for an Oscar, did not win. Uh, tragically lost to the main guy in this movie called The Artist. It's a French movie that I saw like in 2011. Haven't thought about since, except to be pissed about this. Uh, so it's like a, it's a classic. Like we look back on these, and you look at Oscars like five years later, like The Ringer often does, and you're like, dude, what the fuck happened? Like this is an inexcusable result. And when there was a performance like this, and even other ones that year, who was sniffing their farts that year and didn't give it to the person yeah. that deserved it? I mean, it's classic. It's classic, like foreign film favoritism. Yeah. Um, but you know, whatever. Um, 
So I do like the the flashbacks to his history, to Billy's younger self, and how they tie that into his decisions in the modern day. You know that he that he's no longer like he realizes that he was himself a failed scouting prospect. So he understands personally what it's like and how hard it is to predict this sort of thing. And that it's almost easier to lean into the numbers than you at least have like things to base on, other than like they're talking about how like the handsome the guy is or how his dick gets in the uh, room before he does. Or yeah. it's, it's a classic scout talk. Which, by the way, those guys were all played, according to the director, by actual real-life scouts. So it kind of like, you can kind of feel that. Yeah. What are some other things you like? Yeah. It's crazy when you think about that era of how, you know, this era that we're in right now is so numbers-obsessed, almost too, like, too much. You could, like, we have people, like, talking about players and analyzing players that probably don't even watch them play. And they'll say, player X is better than player Y for this reason on this piece of paper. But back then it was like 100% the opposite. They would draft guys straight out of high school just because like he looked good. Like he was right. handsome and he mm-hmm. was built well. Regardless of what his – they'll be like, uh, yeah, but he could do this. He'll learn to hit. Like yeah. Yeah, when he connects with the ball, it's out of the park. You Smooth know? It's like, swing, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's one thing that the A's with the money ball approach specifically moved away from is they stopped drafting guys straight out of high school because there's too much variable, too much hit or miss. They – they couldn't afford to take those flyers on those type of high-risk, high-reward guys. They went with people who have been left in the minors, people with multiple years of college experience, so that you have a lot more data to back up whether or not that player has a chance to perform. You can kind of extrapolate that a little bit better to the pros based on past experience as opposed to you know, getting a guy who's got a hot girlfriend in high school. It makes sense. It's like... It's almost unbelievable, really, that they were ever doing it any other way. Like, right. you talk, like now it just seems so obvious and self-evident. It's like, what were we doing before? But, I mean, it's the way it is. Mm-hmm. And, and, and with, you know, you see a lot of the front office workings. And it's hard to, I feel like, make a sports movie where it's mostly focused on the front office. You know, where you're, yeah. it's business moves, it's meetings, it's in boardrooms, it's talking about players. You're not seeing as much on-the-field baseball in the movie. I mean, that's hard. You just have to have a charismatic performances and, like, a really funny script, you know, like it. I can't. It's a really, really, really well written movie. I mean, the dialogue's snappy back and forth, and it's just it's classic Gary and Sorkin. Um, what you know? What, what are some other things you like about this movie? Do you have anything you want to talk about, kind of generally about it in your notes? Generally, let's see what we got. Um, I liked the um, oh, so something of note is that uh, the uh, Peter Brand character is based off of a guy actually named Paul DePasta who went to Harvard. Peter Brand is not the actual – he's not actually uh, Billy Bean's sidekick in real life in mm-hmm. this situation. So it was based off of him. And he went on to be a GM with the Dodgers, and he's still involved in uh, in sports. I believe he's with the Cleveland Browns right now. I think he um, – Cleveland Browns? I mean, mm-hmm. the Indians? He, no, he went Browns. to NFL? Oh, yeah. wow. He went to um, football. Interesting. That doesn't seem transferable, but uh, I guess there'll be another movie for that. I guess numbers are numbers. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. Um, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of players in both sports on the field at the same time. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of stuff for when we, when we get to the. I had. I, I did have a hard time picking some of the our categories later. I might have mm. some honorable mentions or second places. As you should. In there. What do we think about the baseball scenes here? I mean, are we like? The thing in sports movies is, do you buy the guys as players? Do you buy like the? No, there's a lot of stock footage too here, like where you mm-hmm. like uh, actual recordings of the 2002 circa era, 
uh, Oakland A's from the playoffs and onwards. So they, they kind of intercut that. But then there are some scenes they you know, obviously, um, you know, that's not actually Scotty Hat Scott Hatterberg. That's uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, as we know, the Parks and Rec guy. I just yeah. completely blank on his Chris name. Chris right Pratt. Now. Yeah, Chris Pratt. Yeah. Yeah. yeah how much like baseball by the actors was there? I feel like it was pretty minimal, wasn't it? There's yeah, ground well, balls. There's some. There's some pitching off the mound. There's some basic throwing, but there really isn't isn't too much of it. Yeah, I mean, most of the times it shows them like messing up when they're filming those scenes, you know, because yeah. they want they want them to seem like the Island of Misfit Toys, the ragtag group that won't ever succeed and all that. But yeah. I mean, you know, there there isn't a lot is the answer to the question. But it, I, I I think that they do it like it feels like you're not like what the hell, you know, like in in major league. I don't know if that was one of your movies growing up, but that's you know a classic baseball movie. Mm. There's scenes in it where like, uh, and the Ringer has heavily dissected this, where like Wesley Snipes, for example, is supposed to be their like ace base runner, and he just like looks really slow and unathletic running bases. You know, yeah. and you're you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't pass the eye test. He's the one that he has like he puts a glove on the wall every time he steals or something. Is, is yeah. that the right? Okay. Yeah. I'm not like mixing two movies together. I I did come across something interesting in researching it's not necessarily about the movie exactly but it is about uh like the whole money ball in general so that team that the 2002 team had the al mvp and the al cy young award winner on that roster so just that's kind of that's something that the ringer pointed out back when this movie came out and they also had tim hudson and mark Mulder along with zito on this roster so they did have you can't say that this team was wholly built based off the new strategy. They still had some like incredible all-star talent already right. on the team from previous guys. Now I get it. That's like they were replacing three all-stars with with randoms at that point. Uh, but that was something. Even when I read the book, I didn't realize that that you know I knew all those guys played there and it was around that time. But I didn't put two and two together that you know those three stud pitchers and you know Miguel Tejada all played on the same on the roster that got them you know to the playoffs that year right yeah I saw that too and the, the, you know the yeah the, those three pitchers had 15 plus wins each yeah you know like, Zito had 23 wins on the season which is insane yeah uh, obviously the side young winner yeah and I mean then you have Eric Chavez too apparently had 34 home runs and 109 RBIs on the season so they had just just absolute hitters on the on, in, in addition to Tejada, like you said. So yeah. yeah, like you know maybe maybe not quite the underdog story uh, that that we thought, but you know, they sort of downplay those elements in the movie, mm-hmm. obviously, because you you know they trade Pena, for example, like who who was the in the movie their one you know rookie of the year, and uh, I actually don't know this is Pena a creation for the movie or was he a legitimate player? Um, he was a legitimate player. Let me, I actually pulled his. Oh, you did good numbers. Up. Carlos Pena, he that year he played forty games, and I'm not sure why the the rookie class must have been down because he was hitting two eighteen with the OBP of three hundred five. So his OPS was seven twenty four. So he wasn't like blowing anyone away from the plate. Um, so I don't. I don't know why that was like such a pivotal character. It doesn't seem like that guy would be, you know, that big of an impact. They probably they, they also had another first baseman on their roster who hit 276 and had an OPS of 822. So they want Hatterberg on first, though, man. They need Hatterberg they, on first. They need Hatterberg. Yeah, 
Got to have Hattie on first. So they had um, um, Pena, I think, to in there because he's like has to be good because then Art, you know, the 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 manager wants to play him, and so then it creates the drama between Billy and Art, and yeah. Billy has to trade guys. So I think it like trading Pena is made a big deal by them in the movie making him such a good player. You know, like because mm-hmm. if he's just a fucking bum and he's like. Then he Art's like cool, trade him. Like I don't care. Yeah. But it has to be like such a drastic move in support of the Moneyball proposition. Gotta uh, have so some conflict. Gotta have some movie there. bullshit. Yeah, you gotta yeah. have some movie bullshit every now and then. Uh, that's just kind of the way it goes. So let, let's. I mean, let's. If you're okay, let's move into the. Uh, let's move into the categories. Yeah. Uh, oh, and right before, yeah, at the 84th Academy Awards, Moneyball received six nominations, including four for kind of the Power Four, which is the Best Picture, Best Actor for Pitt, Best Supporting Actor for Jonah Hill, and Best Adapted Screenplay for Sorkin. Zalian and a guy named Shervin who wrote the first draft won none. And as I said before, the artist won uh, that year, which for most of these categories, which is, is preposterous uh, looking back. So that, that is a, a bummer for Moneyball, but you know, at least it is the one movie we still talk about from 2011 and actually care about. So it, it wins in like the two bros are talking about it, regard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's good for them. Uh, so let's let's move into the categories. Let's start with the who gets the most buckets in this movie, which is our, our category for best acted. Uh, I mean, I feel like I gave my hand up earlier, but what do you got? I mean, it's pretty hard to argue with that. Jonah Hill's a great sidekick, but, I mean, you have to give this one to Brad Pitt. You do, for all the reasons we said yeah, before. I mean, it, it's, it's like, it's, it'd be way too fake of an argument to come up against that, yeah. that I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to try to zag where you're zigging. Not yeah. even going to do it. <laughs> and, like, do you think that... um. Like, what's another movie that has come out in the last 10 years? Like, just you think off the top of your head, this is uh, putting you on the spot. But, like, yeah. I mean, that that a that a that focuses on one character like this to sort of take you on the journey through it. And, like, you know what I mean? That, that it's so reliant. Like, that's that's a hard thing, and that's not a common thing. Yeah. And that's kind of why this is a performance that, that deserves such recognition, you know. And, and, and there's some emotional scenes, too. He's got some daughter stuff, like... He, he, he could, you can tell there's some of those scenes he's on the verge of crying, you know, or getting emotional, but he like has this kind of stoic look as I, we were texting that I compare him to Robert Redford. And a lot of people have done that. Like he's been compared a lot by a lot of people to Robert Redford, but he's just a damn charismatic guy. Yeah. Uh, yes. I mean, yeah, I'm the like charting member of Brad Pitt fan club. Like I've been a fan of his for as long as I can remember. So like you said, he's in that room. And even though all those guys are much more grizzled veterans than he is, he still can, like, he commands that room, and everyone knows it. And then he can go and talk to the players when he wants to, when he wants to have those relationships. Uh, like the way he talks to uh, David Justice in the in the batting cage. Teaching him to be the mentor. He needs yeah. to be the leader for the team, yeah. Just no like, doubt. He could be a bro with, like, even the guys. Well, I guess Justice in that situation is only six or seven years younger, but with the you know guys half his age. Yeah. But but at the same time, he keeps the distance. You know, that's kind of a plot point, too, is that he has mm-hmm. to. And you'll note one of the things I read, too, is when he's in Hatterberg's house with his wife and kid, like he does this little thing when players try to talk to him. He's like alienates himself. And, and it's a cool little performance element, like because he has that line where he says, like, I can't get to those guys because I have to be able to cut them, send them down, trade them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so you'll note that if you ever watch it again, like when he's talking to players, Hatterberg asks, do you have any kids? And he like kind of downplays it. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah I, got, I got a daughter. And then he like moves on. He's like, here's a contract. Yeah. So there's little things like that that kind of like, when you know you're watching a good performance, it's hard to articulate the little elements, but those are that's stuff that matters, I think. Yeah. And he never shakes anyone's hand, especially the players. Like unless it's like a very, I'm doing this just for a business situation. But like he goes to Hatterberg's house. I'm pretty sure he doesn't shake his hand when he comes in. 
Yeah, when he when he when he trades Yambi, uh, he like doesn't uh, the younger the younger brother like he yep. doesn't shake his hand when he leaves. He like puts his hands on his hips yep. and like as if to as if to show like, dude, I'm not. This isn't like a we're not bros. This is business. You know, mm-hmm. you're you're a resource for me. Uh, so that that stuff matters. And I mean, it, you, you you're right. You you'd be kind of struggling to to uh, make the argument that it's anyone but Pitt. Uh, so let's go to the next category: six man or woman award. Which I'm going to give away my uh, pick right now because I'm going to name this award because I feel like it should already be named this the Philip Seymour Hoffman Award. Uh, mm. He's been I'm going to type this in here. He is the king of this character, this role where he comes in for like you know let me use the terminology. He's like a relief pitcher or he's a closer. He just comes in and plays like one inning, maybe just half of an inning, and manages to make his imprint on any movie he's ever in. He's the classic six man. He's the the classic in the, the ringer terminology of the Dion Waiters. Uh, in this movie, he plays Art Howe, the uh, the manager of the team, who's responsible for in the dugout, of course, and basically the coach in baseball. And he he's he does such a good job with this muted character, but he's so good. And I mean, I, the the stuff that Phil Seymour Hoffman always does in these little scenes, like when he has uh, the the look at Hill whenever Jonah Hill asks him, like, does he want him to close the door? And he just like stares at him, <laughs> and and the way he says like. Uh, it, which is just great com- comedy stuff with Hill, but the way he says, uh, you know, to Billy after he starts trading guys away to force his lineup, and he's like, "You're killing this team." And I mean, he just like he's just he's so good. I mean, he's amazing. It's a role that could have been a nothing part, you know, just throw any guy in there. But like he he comes in, it's just like you remember it, and he's so good in anything he's in. I'm a big fan. Uh, who do you got for your uh, Phil Seymour Hoffman award? So I, I dug a little bit more, someone with less screen time. I mentioned him a second ago, but Stephen Bishop plays the David Justice in mm-hmm. this movie. And I thought... Tell that, me about him. You know, Do you know about him? It's like history? No. The, David Justice or Stephen Bishop? Stephen Bishop. No. Uh, and he and I want you to talk more about that, too. It's a good pick. So he was a, uh, a player, um, but he was mostly in the minor leagues. I believe played for the, the Braves minor league team for years and was kind of like bouncing up and down triple-A and pro ball. So he had often been compared as well in the minors to being David Justice. Like oh, they called him, they called him like little, little justice. I mean, in terms of his, the way he looks yeah. like, uh, and, and so, you know, it was, it was a casting of a player who also looked like the guy that needed him to be. So that was an interesting background. It's like if I could have played Andrew Luck in a movie. Exactly. Like several yeah. years ago. Well, I mean, that's still going to get made, dude. Like he just retired. I mean, inevitably that, that movie's 10 years away. I so keep the like, beard going. I need four inches. Up oh, height. dude, movies. Up, Come up on. Height. Tom Hardy's like 5'9", dude, and he played Bane. That's true. Yeah. That's how they, it's movie magic, man. That's, That's you, true. You Mark Wahlberg never looks 5'4 like he actually is. Yeah, Tom, and Tom Cruise is like 5'4". He's like yeah, a midget. That's true. Or I can't say that anymore. But you know what I mean. Yeah, so I went with Stephen Bishop for a couple of the justice scenes. So he's just like, he's really funny to me. The scene on the plane where he looks at Jonah and he's like, I got a question. He's like, why is soda a dollar in the clubhouse? Mm-hmm. And Jonah comes up with the most like nerdy, fake an- answer, non-answer. He's like, well, yeah, it's like GM the, money, the money's on the field. And he's like, man, it's sure really hard to see my dollar out there on the field. And Jonah's <laughs> like, well, yeah, it, it is. It's, a, it's complicated to explain. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was really good. The scene in the, the batting cage 
where he is won over by Billy Bean and he agrees to become the mentor role. The one immediately following that when he's with Hatterberg in the little breakfast room where they have like the worst nutrition, this team. Like everyone's eating mm. like sugary Had some cliff cereal, bars. Had some Red cliff Bull. bars in the background. I noticed yeah. that. Hattie's drinking a coffee. You know, you can't go wrong with zero calories. But like, you're right. That, that was a uh, – I don't – did they shoot this? I don't think so. I don't think they shot this at the actual A's clubhouse. In fact, I think they shot a lot of it at Dodger Stadium. The actual baseball scenes they had to shoot, mm-hmm. uh, and it, they dressed it up to be like eight different major stadiums. But yes, like I, I wonder where if they build a set for what was the 2002 dugout. But even yeah. or clubhouse. But even Billy references the end. He's like, "Damn, this this place is a shit heap," or whatever he says. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, ownership's not going to spend money there if they're not going to spend money on their players. Right. Uh, yeah, but that one guy's in great shape. Like that's how David Justice was still. You know, even though he was an aging ball player. Uh, so yeah, I thought that his uh, he did the most with the little time that he had. Mm. That's a mark. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, let's move on to the ISO play, which is our category for the single greatest scene. I've got four different nominations here. Feel free to to write in any that stuck out to you. These just came to mind when I made this mm, yeah. very quickly. So I got the first meeting with the old scouts. Uh, you know where Billy starts to to push back on the the typical baseball thinking and start to say look guys if we try to play with the yankees in here we're going to lose to the yankees out there which is the the kind of like pivotal question is this money ball thing going to work um and then i've got the trading for rincon scene when billy goes back to shapiro the cleveland gm and and goes and gets that left-handed reliever that he wanted at the beginning of the film uh but he's able to do it because he's more he's actually got assets he's got a smart uh co-gm and peter brand hill's character kind of navigating him through it and that's just a quippy Aaron Sorkin-y scene where it's got fast-paced dialogue. Billy's on the phone with three different GMs pitting them against each other. Uh, that's just great, great writing. Uh, I got the uh, the Peter trading Pena. Uh, you know, we got the setup and payoff here, comedy in the movie where Jonah Hill has to learn how to cut players, and Billy teaches him you just got to do it quick and short. You know, these guys don't want to mess around; they just want to know what's up. Uh, and then the the culmination of the twenty-win streak. I got uh, Scott Hattieberg's walk-off ninth running. Uh, ninth inning running home run uh, to win the the twentieth game and and continue the streak uh, when it looked like all was lost. Which is that was that to me that moment is like it is it is I like it, but it is very 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 movie like feeling. You know, and I know it's reality. It's what happened, yeah. but that's like the I mean that's the classic shot goes in at the buzzer. You know, like uh, it's it's like a very sports movie moment in a movie that's otherwise not very much like a sports movie, like per se. You know, I, I question. So if Hattieberg was their guy and Whoa. What? Keep going. I just I lost my camera. My if Hattieberg was their guy and he'd been playing first during that whole win streak, why is he on the bench in that situation? Like wouldn't he have been playing that whole game already? That's what I am curious to see if that's actually if that part is actually real or if that's theatrical. It's gotta be a like just I mean that's just yeah, it's theatrical, right? Because like, unless he and he looks like he's about to crap himself, but the dude's played like sixty games eh. at that point. They had and to set him up. They had to set him up for like he was unsure of himself still. Yeah. But at this point, they're in a winning streak, and he's he's one of their best guys at getting on base. So theoretically, he's one of their best like sources of runs. Yeah, you know? I mean, and so th- theoretically, he'd have some confidence going up to the plate. But he, but he wasn't a power hitter. I think that's kind of what you know. And and he didn't just need to get on base at this point. They needed a run, you know. So yeah. maybe that wasn't usually where they go to. But I think that's just kind of some. I'm okay with it. It's movie bullshit. Yeah. Uh, did you have a, another scene that stuck out to you? Uh, so yeah, I had actually had all of those. If not, yeah, most of those are not all of those. Another one I would add is the locker room scene 
where Giambi's dancing on the table when Bean comes in and breaks the boombox or whatever the sound producing machine is in that era. Boombox. And then he, uh, he's like, is, you know, is that what losing, or this is what losing sounds like. And Mm. then it's just total silence. He's like, why are you guys having fun? I thought that was a pretty good scene too. Yeah, that is a good scene. Good pick. Uh, I, I do have a uh, a quick shout out to the uh, Rincon scene. I can play it for you right here. I'm saying it doesn't matter what moves I make if you don't play the team the way that. Nope, wrong clip. Tell them I'll pay for them. But when I when I sell them back for twice amount next year, I keep the money. Okay, so Billy says he'll pay for Rincon himself, but when he sells him for more money next year, he's keeping the profit. Okay, thank you very much. We'll call you back. Thank you. Come on, come on. <laughs> good little hill reaction there when he like does the fist. That's a good a good gif out there on the interwebs if you ever want to use it. Uh, and you just it's a great scene between Billy and and Peter there. Um, and then I have a quick little shout out to Phil Sumer Hoffman as well. Should have played this in the uh, my my six man. I'm saying it doesn't matter what moves I make if you don't play the team the way they're designed to be played, Billy. You're out of your depth. Why not Hatterberg at first? Because he can't play first. How do you know? Not my first baseball game. Right. Scott Hatterberg can't hit. It's His on base. Still keeps us in the plus column. We only need to be seven over five hundred. What? Anything else? Yeah, is is anything else there? It's just classic full swimmer Hoffman. Anything else? Um. Yeah, I'm going to go with, because uh, I'm the, the leader of this thing, I'm going to go with the Hattie's walk-off. That's just classic sports mm. stuff. You know, you got to have, like, a moment like that for you to, you know, the music's going, the soundtrack's pumping, and you're like, hell yeah. Like, this is a, I'm solely invested in this team, and I don't care anything about this club or the players, really. Because it happened, you know, 10 years before this movie even came out, now 20 years. Yeah. How crazy is that? 2002 is nearly 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't seem time, like it man. Sometimes. Time's time's crazy, man. It's a flat uh, circle. Yeah. Something. So most quotable quote is the next category. I, I wrote in some here. Uh, I've got if he's a good hitter, why doesn't he hit good? When they're uh, talking about the with the older scouts, if we try to play like the Yankees in here, we will lose to them out there. I've got Peter's uh, Chad Bradford breakdown when he first starts going through the stats. You know, talking about how why guys are undervalued. Uh, this guy should cost $3 million a year. We can get him for $237,000. Um, Billy Bean when teaching Peter how to, to cut guys. Would you rather get one shot to the head or five in the chest and bleed to death? And Peter says, those are my only two options. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's a classic Aaron Sorkin shit. Uh, and then Billy Bean's ever-present ever refrain, how can you not get romantic about baseball? Which, you know, that that's such like a, you know, you look at all the baseball movies like Field of Dreams or – a major league there's kind of baseball has this romantic element that doesn't exist with other sports and i don't know whether it's it's been around longer or what but like it does have like a narratively romantic element to it that basketball doesn't you know maybe not yet and maybe it'll get there but what do you think explains that like why does it have this this quality that means so much to like fathers and sons or fathers and daughters or mothers you know what i'm saying like families yeah, yeah. Well, i think that if you if you had mentioned families what kids and dads, most of the time, they reference like playing catch with dad. It's not all. It's not usually like shoot hoops with them. 
You know, mm. like you said, it could be that, and that's what you know a lot of people do. But the old adage is, you know, you want to play catch with them. And I think a lot of you know, for me, my grandparents grew up, and I, I don't know if basketball was as big of a thing back then when they were growing up, but especially that like World War II era, baseball was huge. And it was on the radio every day, so people started kind of forming their allegiances based on who they could hear on the radio, and a lot of that gets passed down uh, through the generations. I mean, ABA and NBA weren't until, that's not until the 70s, so, you know, our grandparents' age, that's well before that, that they grew up with. So I think that is kind of, uh, that's where that comes from. Yeah. To me, yeah. it's... That, that's that's a cool theory. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's something like that. I think it's it's age and it's generational situation. You know, you, your grandparents, like my grandparents, wouldn't even know ten NBA teams. You know, but they, they mm-hmm. could probably name like you know two thirds of baseball teams, or at least have heard of them. But you know, that I think maybe ba- basketball gets there. But you're right; it's just so soaked into the culture, and you know, you use so many of these terms just in daily life, like like scoring runs or whatever. You know, what I'm saying like it just comes into play a lot. I feel like. Um, so yeah, uh, do you have any other quotable quotes you wanted to discuss? Did you did you go through the last one? I, I mean, you, I feel like you need to do it. You want to do like a Brad Pitt right now? You want to get into character? Man, I don't know if I that just feels that feels like I'm shortchanging him if I do. I don't know. Give it your best All try. Right. <clears throat> so this is Billy Bean talking to his scouts. Um, he says. Am I supposed to do like a voice impression also? I don't I want you to do whatever you feel comfortable with. Oh, okay. You know, I need you to live in his skin for this next 12 seconds. The problem we're trying to solve is that there are rich teams and there are poor teams. Then there's 50 feet of crap. And then there's us. It's an unfair game. And now we've been gutted. We're like organ donors for the rich. Boston's taking our kidneys. Yankees have taken our heart. And you guys just sit around talking the same old good body nonsense like we're selling jeans. Look like we're looking for Fabio. We've got to think differently. We are the last at the bowl. You see what happens to the run of the litter? He dies. Mm. Good stuff. That was pretty good. I closed my eyes and I felt like I was right there. You know, you right got in a the clubhouse? Few, the yeah, exactly. Sweet upper conference room at the clubhouse? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and of course, the old, um, the old scout there in the, you know, in the, in the talking over everyone says like, who's Fabio? And the other oh, guy dude, goes, was... there's a shortstop in Seattle. And like, it's, <laughs> it's so fantastic. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, the guy with the hearing aid just like misses yeah. so much. Yeah. He's I, just I like not even, it's, I bet that's like such a thing too. Like the guy's <laughs> just like, we'll never retire out of there. I did have one that I thought was really funny that I needed to add. I, so the one about Boston, that was one that I wanted to make sure we got. Uh, the selling jeans, that's definitely in the book. He references selling jeans a bunch. Uh, that's like, must be one of Billy Bean's mantras when he is trying to like make a comparison and talk about how to move towards the analytical, you know, analytical decisions as opposed to physical attributes. Right, like you don't um, want Le- you don't want Levi gene models is like or like Gap gene models, which I think is his reference. Yeah, uh, but but it you alluded to this one earlier and you mentioned it, uh, but he's the kind of guy who walks into the room and his dick's already been there for two minutes. Yeah, <laughs> I laughed for a solid two or three minutes when I yeah. heard that. Like that just cracked me up because you can like you know what he's talking about, and, yeah. but the fact that he put it in those words is what makes it really funny. Yeah. Yeah, it's like old boomer type, like guys in the yeah. clubhouse, literally, you know, like bullshit in the locker room. That's clubhouse talk. Yeah, yeah exactly. So it, it, that, that was really funny and a really funny scene. Yeah. What's your pick? What do you got? I'll give it to you. Out of, let's see, um, 
I'll let you be the 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 mm. king of the mountain right now. I think the last one, the 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 quotes with you know explaining his new strategy and talking about the good body nonsense. Fabio, the Fabio reference is just. It's hilarious yeah. to me. It's funny that he goes to that, you know. That, yeah. I mean, I, I get it, but like, it is. It's a funny Billy Bean moment. You wonder if the real Billy Bean would have ever like been able to pull out a Fabio reference out of his yeah. ass, but I don't know. It works in the scene. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it's it a, is such uh, a good visual quote and visual representation of what they're trying to accomplish with their new strategy. And it's like it's he's literally telling you what the movie's about right there. Yeah, yeah. that that's the that's the classic moment in the movie where you'll and you might ever notice this. Maybe you will now, but there's always a moment where. The, one of the main characters tells you what it's going to be about, or there should be, you know, if it's good writing, like they just literally tell you what you should care about and what the movie's going to be in dialogue quite like this. And, but you know, Sorkin's such a good, it's a really funny way to, to write it. And mm-hmm. like, it's real quippy and snappy and you're not realizing it, but your brain does. Uh, so I, I agree. That's a great quote and kind of just the mantra of the movie and, and, and Billy Bean's character. Um, I do. I feel like we haven't talked about Jonah Hill at all, like, uh, which yeah, is, which right. is crazy. He was nominated yeah. for an Oscar. Uh, he, he plays the in this movie a Yale econ major who's taken this very analytics math based approach to to selecting baseball talent. Um, and in real life, he was a, a Harvard grad who actually played college baseball. So he in this movie he's depicted as like the the nerdiest possible guy, probably never thrown a baseball, much less yeah. played it. You know, and, and so it's like a it's a stark dichotomy between the scouts, you know, the older players, aging players, and and him who comes in with his his calculator and like Ty and, and he's like a, a Ivy league guy and very evidently seems like an Ivy league guy uh, in terms of intelligence. So, I, I mean, he's a, it's a good performance and this is Hill's first pivot movie from you super bad and the knocked up, like those Judd Apatow comedies. And he's like, I don't want to get pigeonholed. I don't want to just play these characters. I love comedy, but like he's looking for different roles like this. And I mean, th- this was kind of, he hit it out of the park in his first go out when you were like, Oh, he's like a good actor. You know, he can play characters that you're not just laughing at. But he still has his comedic timing here. I think a lot of the comedy in the movie stems from Billy and his kind of riffing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, yeah, like, I, I don't know if you have anything to say about Jonah Hill, but a good performance, I thought, by him. And um, it, it, there was a lot of making fun of him after this because he, like, apparently got kind of douchey after he got nominated for an Oscar. I don't know if you remember this, but there was, like, two years after that where all those guys like Seth Rogen and James Franco would, like, roast him all the time. Like, they'd be like, oh. he won't stop talking about his fucking Oscar nomination. And, like... And uh, it's in that movie. This is the end where they're like the the devil comes back and like mm-hmm. they're the people are like rapture happens and certain people still on the earth or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they roast him at they're playing themselves. They like roast him for being a douche now that he was nominated. That's just a funny Jonah Hill life fact. I do that, remember that uh, actually. Yeah. From that movie. Uh, I think that. Yeah. It, it, is the movie as good as it is if. Brad Pitt doesn't have him to play off. If their play off each other is not as good. I mean, Brad can definitely carry the, a movie, but is it reached the level that, you know, we're putting it at without Jonah Hill's performance also? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, definitely, almost certainly not, you know? And so uh, originally when Soderbergh was set to make it, he had Dimitri Martin cast as, as that character. Brad Pitt has always been Billy Bean. Uh, but do you know who Dimitri Martin is, the, the comedian? He's a comedian. He's the one that does the skit about the sleeves, leather sleeves, right? Yeah, and, okay. yeah, and he does a lot of the drawing. Yeah, like yeah, the yeah. He, he does like the yeah the he does the art comedy or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, but he's just kind of a I, I don't know like a, a skinnier classic nerd looking guy, I guess for lack of a better way to put it. Back a lack of a better way to put it, but I feel like he would have been really good too. He has that kind of dry. I, I would have been very interested to see him in this role. 
Um, I don't think Hill was bad, but you know, sometimes you're like, I couldn't imagine anyone else playing Billy Bean, but I could imagine just another good, like nerdy actor playing Peter. Yeah. Um, but I mean, so he got an Oscar nomination and um, he's really good. He holds it down and, and makes it work. Rewatchability. Um, which one is this? I, I'm, I have this movie on Blu-ray uh, and I just don't have a Blu-ray player right now. I know you, you rented it on iTunes, but was this, is this one you would, if you collected movies, is this one you'd add to your catalog? Yeah, I would definitely buy it. I bought, yeah. I think yeah. that's an easy buy if I, or buy it on iTunes if I don't have movies, but it's definitely worth, if if I had, so I own zero movies. If I want to watch something, I'll just rent it or um, rent it or watch it on whatever streaming service. But right. if I did, like you said, collect movies, I would certainly buy this one. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's a good, uh, if you have it, if you can buy it on iTunes or whatever and always have access to it, because it really hasn't been streaming a lot. Like, uh, I, you know, I, I can't remember. It was on HBO for a little bit, but it's not just like chilling on Netflix or, you yeah. know what I mean? So it's like not yeah, it's, super available. Yeah, it's only um, on Stars. Is what, that's like the only, right. I, I tried to go through Hulu and Amazon and both of those, you have to have Stars add-ons to watch it. And even in the past, you know, 10 or 11 years since it's been out, I haven't, or I guess eight or nine, like I haven't noticed it on anywhere really. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is a kind of a movie that you have to seek out, which makes it kind of even better. Uh, but if you have it, it's a cool movie just to throw on. Like, I feel like I've watched it like two or three times now in the last week. Just I'll just turn it on because it's like interesting and you catch different stuff and it's pretty booze pretty fast visually. So like you can just look up and see, oh, here's this scene. But yeah. you will get sucked in. It is a good movie where you'll like, if you come in at the right moment, you'll be like, you'll look up and it's an hour later and you've been watching it. Um, but yeah, really, really good movie. I mean, I, I mean, it's been talked about a lot, but I feel like still doesn't get talked about enough in terms of sports movies and dramas and character-driven movies. So shout out Moneyball. Do you have any other uh, any other final thoughts on on 2011's Moneyball? No, I can't. I don't. I think we covered a lot of it. It was very enjoyable, and I'm glad that I did go back and rewatch it. it it's been how long has it been? Uh, at least six, seven years, probably. Yeah. There's a lot of it that I, I mean, the, the general flow of it I remembered, but a lot of the individual scenes, uh, it, was, it was good to see those again. And I, I mentioned earlier, like, it was just, it was a lot funnier than I remembered. For whatever reason, I don't think I thought of it as, uh, you know, hilarious as I did the first time. Yeah, I mean, it's fast. You know, you have to pay attention to it. Dialogue, there's a lot of dialogue. But, but yeah, I think it's a product of us being older and, yeah. you know, maybe being more the age the target audience was. And uh, now being more into sports, right? That we're like more into that stuff. Like, I mean, you you, you were personally interested in the analytics side of that, of sports and, and basketball, for example. So, and we're starting to see Maury Ball, you know, the, the Daryl Maury, the Rockets GM, who kind of went to threes and layups and um, all that stuff uh, filtrate its way into different sports. So uh, I think it's something of personal interest to us now as opposed to before. And it's just like a cool movie with Brad Pitt in it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that, when I watched this last time back in college or whatever, I didn't appreciate the GM scenes as much, but mm -hmm. now it's way more fascinating and entertaining and like the strategy all involved there that, and the, you know, how quickly that all moves. That was, yeah, there's an extra layer of appreciation for that at this point. Did you have any other comments about tying this into basketball that you wanted to make? I, you referenced it earlier. So I wasn't sure if you had some uh, epic so Shakespearean speech written in your notes there. No. Well, so Michael Lewis is the author of Moneyball and he also wrote, so this book kind of exposed what Oakland was doing in general when 
from my understanding and some, kind of some of the commentary around the book, it wasn't a book that was uh, like built to showcase or written to showcase what it ended up showcasing. It was kind of open for everyone. It just so happened Billy Bean was one of the very few people that like allowed the access to Lewis and kind of let him get in there and get close because uh, he really did not have anything to do with media. And he actually kind of paid for it because then his methods got exposed to really, you know, the whole world could kind mm. of see what he was doing. And that kind of was a way to kind of shot him in the foot a little bit because you got things, you're trying to keep them to yourself, get a leg up where you can. So Lewis in maybe 2009, writing for the New York Times, and he writes a, a, a long-form article uh, about Daryl Morey like you mentioned, trying to do the same thing with title centered around Shane Battier, who is the all like the non all star all star, and how Maury is using analytics to structure his teams and build his game. And then look, seven, eight years, or what, eleven years after that, boom, everyone's doing it. The sprawl ball era, you know, has, has been in the last five years. Everyone's caught on to that. So um, very interesting, you know, kind of the same. Same writer, same author, exposed both of those strategies in their respective sports, and now every's on everyone's on board with that, and it seems like everyday normal practice now. Yeah, I mean, I I think the basketball has a ways to go too, like in terms of the the people's understanding of what Maury's tried to do. I mean, we can look at what their shots are and figure out they take more threes and layups and don't take mid range, but the I think still how they value players. And, you know, what they specifically look at with respect to scouting players is, is sort of still unknown to everyone, you know, like, uh, uh, and you hear it all the time, right? You hear like sometimes the Rockets will sign somebody and all these people will be like, what? That doesn't make sense. Like, uh, I, I don't think they'd fit what they do there. And, and, you know, then you look up and either they failed or not. But that's that's one of those things where I feel like Maury has still kept a tighter lid on player evals uh, and, and maybe everyone figured out what shots he likes to take, but. And they just assume he wants guys that are either that can really shoot and defend and play like switchable, but that's all like assumptions, right? We we don't actually know that's the case. But similar to being kind of regretting the outcome of Moneyball, Maury has also openly said, like I've heard him. I think on a Woj pod he talked about how yeah he wishes that he had never given Lewis like that interview for him to talk about and expose all the stuff that all that he's doing down in Houston because that's made his job a lot harder. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, you had guys that kind of did the same thing but did a little better in the Golden State Warriors. Mm -hmm. I mean, granted, they happen to draft two transcendental shooters, but it's like at some point it's like that sucks. It sucks yeah. to get beat routinely by the guy that – the team that adopted your your style. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's – and you wonder if it's going to seep its way into other sports. I don't know if it has. Like, I'm not a big hockey guy. I don't know if, like – these same sort of stats exist um, or if hockey's more like this guy can skate really well and he's really strong yeah. and I think he's in, good with the puck. Like, I mean, yeah, I think in football you'll see a lot more coaches go it for it on fourth down. I think that's kind of part of this is they've looked and seen, you know, if I go for it every fourth down and I get it 40% of the time, you know, what's going to happen to me? What's mm -hmm. my payoff? How many more points am I going to score? I'll give up some more points, but how many more points am I going to score off of those extra first downs? I think that's, not knowing football that well, that's the one thing that I can see where they've taken this approach. And talking about the uh, the, uh, I don't know if you've heard the 
football all four downs you throw just like you throw downfield oh, yeah, yeah. uh, to your best receiver and and the, the theory is you on one of those one of those four tries you will convert and mm-hmm. get another first down uh because it, when you throw long to a receiver 67 percent of the outcomes are positive for you yeah. you know passing interference or he catches it and only 30 percent him just missing you know or the bad pass or whatever him dropping it is so it's like your chances are really high that at some point in four tries, sixty-seven percent theoretically, you should always it should always work. Um, I guess you could also throw a pick, but I don't know. But you know what I mean. Like, so yeah, that, that's no, another yeah. kind of like analytics approach to there, why are we doing more, this the way we're doing it? Yeah, there's a lot more passing than running. You know, the value of a running back who just runs it up the middle, like <clears throat> your classic guy, like Derrick Henry. He would have been, you know, way more lauded years ago as opposed to you know where he is now. Or the lead, you know, appreciated by the league, but more value on passing quarterbacks and receivers. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, well, I don't know if you have anything else on Moneyball, uh, but I hate losing, Zach. I hate it. I hate losing more than I even want to win. And with that, I'm going to sign off on the Moneyball podcast. This has been another episode of In the Can. I'm here with Zach on the Barnburner Podcast Network. You can find me, Sam, at the Barn Chief, and Zach where? At Barnburner Bro. And we hope you check it out. Until then, have a good quarantine life. Y'all stay safe.